Hi, Peter. Hi, Patrick. Looks like we've been renewed for a second season. Look at us. We have people listen to Authors Unbound, so that means we get to keep talking to more uh, writers and poets and all kinds of interesting folks. I feel lucky. So do I. And today we get to talk to John Shoptal, who's an incredible critic and poet whose new collection, Near Earth Object, will be coming out from Unbound Edition Press in 2024. It's an incredible book and a manifestation of what John has called eco-poetry, a term that has made its way around the globe, thanks to him. Yeah, he's really kind of the leading voice in that. And it's so um, amazing how we get to meet these sorts of folks. We just happened to be talking to the wonderful poet Jesse Nathan one day, and he said, hey, I have this colleague who has a collection you should see. And before we knew it, the manuscript was in our hands, and John was on the phone, and now we get to talk to him today about near-Earth object. It's a collection that decenters the human and recenters the natural world as the point of view uh, through which we might see our our lived experience, and takes on really serious subjects like climate change, but in such an accessible way. He John is really a poet's poet, but um, the everyday reader can absolutely fall in love with these poems too. I think. I agree, and I think one thing that comes out very clearly in John's poetry and his essays and in his conversation is the way that while he takes a good look at the worst, as Thomas Hardy once said, he will not settle for despair. There's a hopefulness here despite the very real reckoning with our situation, and it makes our conversation with John feel to me very vital. Absolutely. It's a timely subject and a wonderful poet that we get to spend uh, time with today on Authors Unbound. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Authors Unbound, the podcast connecting passionate writers with passionate readers. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. And Peter, we're back with our second season of Authors Unbound. It's been a little bit since uh, we've been talking with all kinds of interesting poets and other writers. How have you been? What have you been reading? I've been doing well. I mean, I'm particularly excited that our show got renewed, but um, I've been reading a lot and getting outside now that uh, classes are over and getting into the groove of reading and writing more poetry, which very much includes reading and rereading and reading the prose of the wonderful author we're going to talk with today, John Shoptaw, who's a tremendous poet. I think I first encountered him as a critic, his writings about John Ashbery and then his writing about eco-poetry, and was just so thrilled to see John's new manuscript, Near Earth Object. And I think I speak for the whole everyone at the press and saying that we're just thrilled and honored to publish a book that is not only first rate, incredibly 
well-wrought poetry, but is very timely and important and has a lot of vital energy. I can't wait to hear John read from the books. I could well stop trying to describe it and with these generalities and, and just get into the actual texture. I mean, I think that's something that is evident in John's poems and is a part and parcel of the commitment of his poems is their embeddedness, their um, attention to the here and now. It's certainly timely and maybe the most unfortunate ways that these poems resonate with a particular depth as we face climate crisis and other ecological threats and disasters. Maybe the place to begin, John, is telling us what eco-poetry is. I know you have a fantastic essay doing this work for us in, um, in poetry, but I wonder if uh, you might give us a nickel tour of eco-poetics. I'd be delighted to, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. You know, eco-poetry is a term, a concept, that has been changing as the times change. I think of it as poetry that is at once, say, environmental and environmentalist. But by the first, I mean that it's poetry that has a perspective outside the human, in which the human is not the be-all and end-all of the poem. And secondly, that the state of affairs, the state of nature, the state of the world leaves one perhaps a, a bit unsettled, and that moves people. I, I'm, I'm looking for a way to, you know, leave people in a different place after they hear a poem than uh, when, when they began. And uh, it's something that happened to me. It's not as though I, I sit back like God <laughs> doing these things. I'm down in the trenches working through poems. and. Uh, I've been changed in the result. I, I, I think I know what I'm doing, and I fail, and I find I didn't know so well what I was doing. That certainly happened uh, with the first poem in this book and with the last poem in this book. From beginning to end, it's been a learning process for me. When I wrote this essay, Why Eco-Poetry, climate change was really the impetus for eco-poetics. I think everyone would say that wasn't so much a topic. People weren't really writing about climate change per se. It was just like, well, given climate change, we should be writing about all these things. And but when I asked, what about climate change? And that brought up you know, a whole host of questions and, and problems. But trying to approach that, you know, beginning to try, that uh, led to this book. I think poetry that changes us, uh, as you just said, is one of the great definitions, maybe of poetry in general, but of eco-poetry in particular, that changes our perspective. It decenters us as the human, and so much of the poetry in Near Earth Object, your forthcoming book, centers beings, uh, creatures, um, living things that are not human. And I wonder what it's like to try to write from that perspective. It's a wonderful thing to try to do. It's been a learning experience. I, I feel when I began to take animals and plants seriously, it was like a 
you know, Copernican shift in perspective, like almost nothing else that I had experienced for decades. I really started thinking differently. If I just asked a question, what do animals think about climate change? How are they dealing with it? Or what do they feel about life and death? Or what do they feel about different species? Does a bear, when it growls, think, oh, no, no, you know, they have no conception of my growl. I, I'm being, you know, bear-centric. <laughs> no, <laughs> they growl. <laughs> and you better listen. <laughs> Which makes me want to ask you, John, if you would read after a cricket for us. I think this might be a good way to get the reader into this idea of the shifting perspective toward overcoming this denial or despair or stuckness. Uh, it might also just allow our listeners to hear your your poetry and get into that music and the texture thereof. All right. After a cricket, hope holds despair as much as despair holds hope. Despair has to keep hope out of mind somewhere, like that fine-tooth strumming I heard over lunch. From what couldn't have been a cricket, it was too cold in the fall, too sunny in the day. Hope, hard hope, doesn't tune out, but listens through despair for sounds of life. For the foreseeable century, the climate will gleam on us, hardening and fissuring anywhere at once, as any expression will, if it's held too long. Over lunch the next day, I heard the same sound, so I went outdoors and followed the strumming to what, sure enough, was a cricket, running one forewing down the other, somewhere in the noonday shade of the braided wisteria vine in pod. I felt this strumming deepened the shade he basked in, but I knew he wasn't playing for me or only to please himself. A blithe hope and a carefree despair come to the same. Unutterable despair is real and widespread. Field mouse flow to a date palm shrieking with eager owlets is calm. But telling yourself the truth is all earth is lost isn't much harder than saying earth will all turn out for the best. I'm counting now on a poetry not of absolutes, but of degrees. The next day, nothing. So I went out and I listened to a silence in the shape of a strum. The strummer, I like to think, hadn't given out, but met up with an admirer. His hope would have held. He played like it would never have occurred to him to stop before he was done. The poetry of degrees, isn't that beautiful? I think this is the first time in a poem that I tried to articulate what I've been calling a poetics of impurity. I was going to ask you about that, John, because you know Patrick mentioned your essay Why Eco Poetry that came out a few years ago in Poetry Magazine, a very important essay. And you have one that's, I think, being released this week or next in an American Poetry Review called The Poetry of Our Climate, taking a 
title from Wallace Stevens. And it has a chapter or a subsection with that title, The Poetry of Impurity. I wanted to ask you, what what is that? I should say that it began with me thinking about uh, forest fires. You may remember there was this controversy when California was beset by forest fires and people in California were saying climate change and Donald Trump was saying, no, you just sweep the forest floor. And I realized that he, even though Trump didn't know what he was saying as usual, there was something to what he was saying. That is, if you don't uh, let forests burn naturally as they used to do, or don't even set blazes, then you have all this underbrush, which also uh, can create these intense fires like we've, we've never seen because we've been suppressing fires for generations. On the other hand, climate change uh, led to warmer temperatures where uh, beetles and other creatures started migrating north and wintering over. And uh, in California, they killed, these bark beetles killed 100 million trees. It's hard to believe. It's almost like something out of uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, all these dead trees standing. And that created much of what happened, these unreal forest fires that, that, that came about. So I thought, okay, it's not simply cause and effect, it's factor. There are many factors in climate change, and then it's not simply responsible, irresponsible. It's not enough to say, well, we're all responsible for climate change unless we all change our ways. Uh, you know, Exxon Oil would love nothing more than for us to beat our breast and soul search while they uh, continue business as usual. Gradually, I just came toward this poetics of impurity. Uh, other words for impurity, you could think back to Wallace Stevens, Peter, the imperfect is our paradise, but the imperfect. Uh, but it also admits of the relative, the comparative, the more or less, the somewhat, the doing what we can, uh, so far, so good, a step in the right direction, uh, the partial. And it occupies a kind of middle ground, as I say in this essay, between you know, all and nothing, uh, cause and factor, and quoting from the essay now, the beginning and the end, the usual and the apocalyptic, the bright and the bleak, the unshakably or blindly optimistic, and uh, utterly despairing. It's in between, and I think that's the world in which we need to uh, act and continue to live and and hope. Here's to nuance, right? And rather than uh, the purity of good or bad, but of simply trying, lets us have hope. Rather, as you just said, hope contains despair, and despair contains hope, and in that is the impurity of both, perhaps. I wonder, John, as we listen to you read and talk about Stevens and talk about Dickinson, I'm also thinking of other poems in the collection like Imaginary Gardens or the poem about ants. And it seems to me that Marianne Moore is here and Thoreau is here and that there's an ecology of poets as much as there uh, is an ecology of insects or birds or animals. And I wonder to what degree you were intentionally keeping company in the forest glen with other 
poetic spirits? You know, sometimes it was it was very intentional. I have a poem, a pangolin scales, in which I actually address Marianne Moore, who wrote a poem about the pangolin, so I kind of updated. It's interesting. She also wrote a poem uh, where she talks about Eden before Eve and talks about the kind of clarity of the world for Adam <laughs> before Eve sort of muddying the waters for Adam. And oddly enough, I think that had an impact on the first poem in this book, which is my Eden poem, The Tree in the Midst. It was actually the first poem that I started to write after Woe, which is the long sequence, which is based on Ovid. So it's yet another poem that is drawing on a, you know, a classical myth. And in the, in the Tree in the Midst, I did something somewhat like Marian Moore, where I said, okay, what would Eden be like if you center things not on Adam and Eve, but on Eden, on the animals, on the trees? And that turns out was easier said than done. It took me a long time to find my way around. I, uh, I started that poem actually almost th three years before. I started it back, The Tree in the Mitts, the first poem, about three years before in 2015. And I called it uh, Snake Charmer. And I had in mind Mick Jagger, uh, <laughs> Sympathy for the Devil. I thought I'd like read just a stanza of that to give you a taste of this early attempt, early try that I wrote before I got where I am now. And it is uh, in the words of Satan addressing the humans. Here it is, uh, Satan the snake, the serpent. No, God hasn't got my tongue, though it has gotten gravelly down here where I like it. And no, I never touch fresh fruit, though I have been known from time to time to hanker after free-range peach-fed field mice. But what's puzzling you, so the J author singeth, is the nature of my game. I wonder, could we get you to read uh, Tree in the Midst in its final version? You can, you can. The Tree in the Midst. Long after they had lost sight of the couple and the story that trailed after them, the cherubim kept glaring at the horizon, shrugging their wings at each other and shifting their weight from fore to hind paws. Meanwhile, the unforbidden animals, Indo-Hues, field mice, Persian ground jays, worms, salamanders, bees, and so forth, ate as always from the tree of life, and also from the tree of knowing, good fruit from fruit gone bad, a knowledge the female animal had picked up by watching them from hiding. Only the eternally inexperienced one had never tried so much as a single deep ripe pomegranate arrow. It knew no more than the cherubim that down among the butterfly weeds the two trees become 
one trunk. And so it saw to it that the cherubim kept an eye out for the humans, lest they lose their taste for each other and the world, find their way back to the pomegranate, get fed up with the living, and become one of them. What a great poem that is. It strikes me that the two trees become one might be an example of the poetics of impurity. That's very interesting. This poem began partly with my scratching my head over the Eden story, and in particular, the tree of life. I understood the tree of good and evil. You would have one you know, tree with forbidden fruit on it, but uh, to have two trees <laughs> with forbidden fruit, one of which doesn't even appear till after the fall, that was very strange to me. I thought, what, what's going on with this? And uh, actually, it, it, it's somewhat vague in the versions, and even in the King James Version, the tree is referred to as the tree in the midst, rather vaguely, to include either or or both. There's a, a, an element of biblical criticism which says there's only one tree. I try to say in this poem, it, it's life. It's the tree of life, and what what is good and bad, it's like what sustains life and what doesn't. What is safe to eat and what's not. That's the first thing you need to learn out there. This discussion of instinct and of the animal perspective leads us very nicely to our final questions, which we get from Marcel Proust. And these are questions that are designed to help us identify new species identification for writers. And these are, are kind of parlor game questions, but I think they help us to figure out what kind of creature any given writer is. So I was going to ask you one from this list we have. What occupation do you think you would be if you weren't a writer? Once I took a test where I, I was searching for an occupation because I had begun my college career as a physics major, and near the end I decided I did not want to uh, become a physicist as much as I enjoyed studying it. It wasn't something that I thought I wanted to do, so I took a test, and one of the the, the top hits was uh, traffic cop. There's something there. You, you kind of caught something that I actually uh, had. You know, I do believe in justice, and I, I do believe in, 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 in rules, and so that was interesting, and I thought, well, if I could have something like that, that would be okay. I did toy for a while in... Uh, thinking about becoming a preacher. And I think part of this, you know, poetics of eco-poetics is finding a way to change people without being preachy. That's what I would say. I'm happy to be a teacher. I think teaching and learning are fundamental to the poetic process. I have another question here from our Proust questionnaire, which is, what is your greatest indulgence as a writer? I like to indulge in as I write is letting things enter the poem which I hadn't planned on. And just being open to that such that I feel I'm a collaborator with my own poem. When I thought about near-Earth object, I thought about the humans and the asteroid 
And I thought, you know, we are the asteroid. That was my, that was my insight. Uh, and then I was walking out, hurrying toward the bus one day, and I saw uh, this, this monarch, a freshly expired monarch, right on the walk, right before me. And I thought, oh my God, climate change. Here it is, right here, this beautiful monarch. And I thought, well, what do I know? And that, uh, I said, okay, the monarch, because I really felt it, you know, I really felt that. And I, I, uh, I thought, okay, you're in the pool. And, you know, for better or for worse, I just have to deal with that. So that's, that's my indulgence. It's often uh, scary, but it makes it real. It makes it real. John, thank you for such an engaging conversation, for educating us about eco-poetry and its importance, the poetics of impurity and the need for nuance in an age of absolutism, and ultimately the optimism that is in these very serious poems. You're telling us not to give up and what a message we all, we all need to hear. We're so proud to be able to publish Near Earth Object in uh, spring of 2024 from Unbound Edition Press, and we'll have much more to say about it as uh, it comes out. But really thankful for your readings today and for sharing bits of the book with us here on Authors Unbound. Well, thank you so much for our conversation. I'm really thrilled. It's wonderful to hear you read too, John. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you. I, uh, I'm so excited that Unbound Edition Press is bringing out my book. It's such a thrill because you get it. You get it. You're not like some corporation acquiring my book. You have read the book. <laughs> you, are, yeah, you are conversing with the book and you're on board and that, that means everything to me. We try to do it a little bit old-fashioned, which somehow feels um, strangely new uh, these days. So thank you for being part of that with us, John. Be well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been Authors Unbound. You can find us anywhere you search for your favorite podcasts, whether that's Apple Music, Alexa, or Spotify. And also, make sure to visit us at unboundedition.com to learn more about our authors and titles. Thanks. Thanks.